Today's program includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Each year, about 17,000 murders in the United States are committed, most as acts of passion, robbery, or revenge. But some murders are perpetrated for no seeming reason whatsoever. These homicides come at the hands of psychopaths that delight in their master plan of surprise. They thrill at the notion of control. They feel like invincible kings of death as their victims look into their merciless eyes. But then there comes a miscalculation and a time of reckoning. How it all began, if truth be told, had a master plan. Now I rule the world, took him by surprise, worked my way uphill, they looked into my eyes. I became invincible, no one can stop me, for only I am in control. If you want me, you'd better Contact my people in my crown. I am king. I love their endless worshipping. I am raw, a dinosaur, but I will never be extinct. So don't mess with me. I am delighted to welcome to Watching America Maureen Callahan. Maureen Callahan has a book. It is a bestseller which looks and examines the life and mayhem and murderous antics of one Israel Keys. The book is entitled American Predator. And so uh, with that in mind, may I welcome you, Maureen, to Watching America. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me. The first thing I want to ask is, uh, you've really taken quite a pilgrimage from your earlier work. In 2014, you wrote a book called Champagne Supernovas, which was all about the 1990s fashion. How does one go, as a writer, from writing about 1990s fashion to one of the most um, uh, despicable personalities ever to walk on terra firma? You know, it's interesting. I... um in my day job, I'm a, I'm a reporter and a critic at large at the New York Post. And I've been very fortunate there in that they indulge me in my wide-ranging Catholic interests. You know, I pretty much write about anything that interests me. Um, and the fashion world, you could say, certainly has its own villains and can be <laughs> dark in its own way. And I certainly explored that. Um, and, and, and the Gen X fashion revolution of the 90s, which I told through sort of a triple biography of, I think, the prime movers of that revolution, Kate Moss, Mark Jacobs, and Alexander McQueen. Um, and I really, I, I, was, I was really, really obsessed with that for, for quite some time, and I really got it out on the page. I mean, it's, it's all there, and when I was done, I had nothing more to say on the subject. Um, and then I came across this story. I've always been an avid consumer of, of well-told true crime, uh, which at the moment is really having a sort of renaissance. Um, I happened to come across this story prior to the boom that we're seeing now 
you know, where it's everything from serial to the jinx to making a murderer to the Ted Bundy tape. Even, you know, you could stretch it a little bit and say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with its rooting in the Manson family murders. So I, I came across this story of Israel Keys, which was truly incredible, long before you know, the, the sort of recent renaissance in true crime. And it was a harder, a harder thing to convince publishers to go for back then. But Why was that? Why, why was it harder back then than now? And, and we're only talking about five or six years ago, so not that long. Um, but true crime was still largely regarded in publishing as kind of a redheaded stepchild, mm-hmm. you know, um, cheap and fast and pulpy, you know, paperbacks you see in airports, and, and not what it had been in decades prior. I mean, you go back to even the 80s, like Anne Rule's The Stranger Beside Me or uh, Fatal Vision, mm-hmm. Uh you know, there were there were they, those books were taken really seriously, and and they are really unputdownable, uh, and and they're great feats of investigative journalism, um, and true crime is is now having that renaissance. But because of the internet and technology, uh, what we're seeing with projects like the Jinx and Serial and Making a Murderer, and 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 the way this book in particular is also designed, American Predator, is to have the cases then move forward in the real world in a real way. Well, there was an igniting moment, a genesis of you pursuing years of your life to this endeavor. What was it? It was coming across this small story uh, in early December 2012, and I got to the second paragraph, and it had three lines that to me were each a Pandora's box. One, this guy had a modus operandi that the FBI's top criminal profilers had never seen. Number two, he had no victim type, and he had no geographic preference. So he was killing anyone who came across his path all over the United States for at least 14 years. That's unprecedented. Number three, despite that, the FBI and the federal government had been keeping his existence a secret for the past nine months that they had had him in custody. Why was that? And I, I just knew there were going to be multiple, multiple deep, rich mysteries to explore in this book. And if I had known, I mean, I, that's why I wound up spending five years. It was a lot. It was, mm. it was fascinating and epic and there were cover-ups and, and missing interviews and, and missing key pieces of information that led to this case being larger than just your, your sort of great serial killer story. Well, I shall quote you. You said regarding your work, you were looking at the most diabolical, little-known serial killer in modern American history. Did you ever get tired? Never. I never once woke up and thought, this is a, this is too hard, or I, I, I don't want to fight uh, with the federal prosecutor's office anymore, or with the FBI or the Department of Justice, or uh, you know, I, I, I just I wanted to know everything I could possibly know. So you hit um, roadblocks all the way. Well, it's 
interesting because at the outset of the book, the FBI immediately said, we'll participate. They agreed that a book could potentially help locate and identify more victims. Um, And so they gave me, for the next year and a half to two years, unprecedented, unfettered access to every case agent who worked this case. Um, I would speak to them, you know, once a week, every week for at least an hour, sometimes more, Mm -hmm. going over this case from front to back in granular detail. I went up to Anchorage. I spent spent, uh, winter and summer time up there. I went to Washington State, met with the case agents there. I spoke to law enforcement all over the country. Uh, But once I began to realize that there was more to this narrative than the FBI's official version, which ended, as far as any news reports were concerned, about halfway through the case. So they went public with it in December, but their narrative ends in June of 2012. So there are six months that are completely unaccounted for that are blank. Nobody knows anything about the investigation. Nobody knows anything about this guy's childhood at all. Why was that? Nobody knows anything about this guy's time in the military. I asked for his military records. I got a very thin file. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back after this break. This is Watching America from WHRV Public Media. Today's guest is Maureen Callahan, author of American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. The book details the investigation and capture of Israel Keys. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners, including children. Now, it's alleged that he, early on, that he came from a... Uh, Mormon family, that he was homeschooled, as I understand, and that he had some minor affiliation with white supremacy movement. Um, Is that all correct, or is that erroneous? It's not erroneous, but it is, that is sort of the threadbare stuff that had been circulating on the internet uh, among people who were interested in this case, uh, all of whom, like me, were hungry to know more Mm -hmm. about his upbringing, because you sort of want to know, you know, the great existential question with these criminals is, how did they get this way? Are they born or are they made? Um, there's no question that his, his upbringing played a factor. Uh, so one of the documents I was able to obtain, which I was, I was dying for and only got, I think I got it last May after, uh, after suing uh, the federal prosecutor's office was the court ordered psychological evaluation of Israel Keys. Wow! I knew that this would be a gold mine. It would be the greatest self-report we have to date of his upbringing. And I also was able to talk to his mother Heidi, who had never spoken before. Um, so putting those things together, I got a much more uh, rich sense of his background. So yes, he was born into a Mormon family in Utah. Uh, He and his older sister, America, lived there until about America was four, 
And then Heidi told me that she and her husband moved the family up to this remote corner of Washington State because the neighbors were concerned about the children. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want CPS knocking on their door. Right. So they move up there. Heidi proceeds to have eight other children, so there are ten in total. They are all home-birthed. They are all homeschooled. They are living in tents for the first seven years they're up there. Winter, rain, doesn't matter. They're in tents while the father, Jeff, builds them a cabin by hand. At a very young age, Israel is learning how to hunt and to dress games so he can feed his family. Mm. At a very young age, he's exhibiting the textbook traits of a budding psychopath. He is breaking and entering neighbors' homes. Uh, He is experimenting with arson fires. He is not only stealing guns, but he's learning how to build guns. Um, He's torturing and murdering family pets. Um, When he's about 14, the family joins a church called the Ark, which the Southern Law Poverty Center still has an eye on uh, in terms of its white white supremacist teachings. Um, And it's at the Ark that a young Israel Keys befriends two brothers up there. This is in Colville, Washington. These brothers, uh, Chevy and Shane Kehoe, grow up to find themselves on the FBI's 10 most wanted list in the 1990s. And when they are arrested, one brother flips on the other and says that he was a co-conspirator with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Was that true? It's unclear. But they did seem to have ties to, to McVeigh and to the white supremacist movement. Uh, one of the documents in this case, or multiple documents in this case, that I also obtained way into the reporting process, I'm going to say again, it was around last May, were documents that made it clear that very late into the uh, interrogations with Keyes, this case was suddenly reclassified within the Bureau. The Israel Keyes case went from serial murder to terrorism. Now, was that by association with these persons or by antics and behavior on his part? Well... One of my thoughts is that uh, one of the last interrogations he did uh, with the FBI, which they've really never made public, uh, there were two agents who had been working it in Washington State who came up to interrogate him in Anchorage. And Keyes liked to sort of drop little bits of information to tantalize them as to his past or things he had done and let them sort of hang And in this interrogation, and one of these was telling interrogators that he knew how to make bombs. And when you listen to this recording, you can hear one of the most seasoned investigators on this case literally sputter. I mean, he takes a pause and he sputters and he says, you you make bombs, you make explosives. And he says, he says, yeah. And so that's not shocking information at all. And within moments of that admission, the FBI deploys bomb squads on opposite sides of the country, one to Keyes' home in Anchorage and one to property that he owns 
in upstate New York. They have never said what they have recovered. But in FBI witness interviews that I obtained, he had told someone he served with in the United States Army that he had buried 9,000 rounds black talon ammunition on his property in upstate New York. Black talon ammunition, those are the so-called cop killer bullets that have long since been outlawed. Mm. So what had Israel Keys done or what was he planning to do? Well, let's listen to an example of him taunting investigators. Uh, this is uh, a, a statement that he makes regarding, uh, ironically, supposedly feeling guilty at the taxpayer's expense. So here's the clip now. I almost feel guilty. Cops <laughs> from the taxpayers, a lot of money to find <laughs> What do you make of, uh, of a personality that in, enjoys toying with authorities? Uh, he's definitely enjoying having control with offenders such as these. And this was really one of the only things that the FBI's criminal profilers were able to tell the agents in the room, you know, that these guys, they just love control and just make him feel as though he has all the control and try to keep him talking because the smarter ones like to talk. And Keys was exceptionally smart. Uh, he was completely self-taught. I mean, this was somebody who had zero formal education of any kind. Um, but that specific quote about, I should have just kept my mouth shut. The truth is, and all of the case agents admit this, and it's not an easy admission, was that if Israel Keyes had not confessed to the murder of Samantha Koenig, this young 18-year-old barista who went missing in Anchorage, and also confessed to the double homicide of a couple that he took from their bedroom in the dead of night in suburban Vermont, and that case had long since gone cold. The FBI, law enforcement at a state, a local level, would never, ever have solved those cases. Well, let's examine those cases. But before we do, let's hear another clip where, again, uh, he is somewhat confessional and manipulative, regarding having a, a dual personality, and uh, here's the soundbite. There is no one who knows me, or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. They know they're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me. How long have you been two different people? <laughs> long time. 14 years. What do you make of that? That was one of the most chilling statements he uttered during the entire investigation. And at first, the agents didn't quite believe him. Uh, and as their investigation continued, they realized he was telling them the truth. Nobody in his life, uh, from his 10-year-old daughter, who he, he doted on and, and truly did adore, to his live-in girlfriend, to his former girlfriend who had been the mother of his child, uh, to his nine siblings, to people he did work for as a contractor in Anchorage. Uh, these were judges and lawyers, people whose homes he could enter and exit at free will. Uh, nobody believed it. Um, and so they realized that they were in over their heads pretty quickly. 
This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. Today's program includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Uh, my guest is Maureen Callahan, who has written the New York Times bestseller, and I might add, became the bestseller week one it was released, which, which is an exceptional achievement. She is the author of American Predator, which is an examination of the uh, murderous existence at one time of Israel Keys. And now let's, Maureen, if we can, go through the circumstances related to the primary mem- uh, uh, murders, at least that we know of, because as you've indicated and so have others, it's highly suspected that he's actually uh, killed far more multiples than, than people have a record of. So we'll begin with the misfortune of Deborah Feldman in Hackensack, New Jersey. Can you tell us about that, please? Deborah Feldman was a particular um, point of pride for Jeff Bell, who was, I had mentioned earlier, uh, was was shocked by the explosives admission. Um, But, you know, Keyes had said to them, you'll never find another body without me. And at a certain point in this investigation, he quit talking to the FBI for several months. Um, So Jeff Bell took it upon himself to find another victim without Israel Keyes' help. He really wanted to prove to Keyes that he was wrong and that the FBI wasn't as hamstrung without him as he thought. And so, you know, Jeff, there's a point in the book where I describe his his approach at the outset, um, where after they've arrested Keyes in Texas, uh, he's looking at the possibility that Keyes took someone in Texas, that his last known victim was not his last known victim. And in using the mileage that he put on his rental car during that trip, uh, Jeff Bell takes a map of the United States, packs it on the wall in what he calls his war room, and he has the mileage, uh, and he starts with a compass and a pencil drawing lines uh, from Keyes' home base in Texas to places he could have driven during his time uh, in that state. And when he finishes, he's got circles around 13 states. Wow. And Jeff Bell told me he, he stepped back and, and he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. Uh, and, and, and he, he had a kind of investigator's reverence for, for what he was about to go up against. Um, and he would, even when he wasn't working, he would go home and he would get on the computer as so many of these case agents did and try to cross reference their secret internal timeline of Keyes' travels, which is, by the way, it's also in the book, um, with, you know, missing persons, and he came across Deborah Feldman, a woman who uh, had been a sex worker and had disappeared from 
her own front door, basically, in Newark, New Jersey, and had never been heard or, or, or seen again. And Jeff Bell had a pretty good idea that Keyes was responsible for that. And when he finally came back to the table, Jeff put Deborah's photo in front of him, and all he would say is, I don't want to talk about her yet. And uh, Jeff took that as a tacit admission that he was right, responsible. Absolutely. You describe Israel Keyes as being an analog killer in a digital age. And in reference to that, you speak, for instance, of him taking phones and breaking them and what have you. Uh, it sounds to me that he may have learned quite a few things from watching uh, Brian Cranston in, in Breaking Bad as, as Walter White. Um, uh, that series began, and I'm quite serious, in 2008. And it was a regular routine to see Walter White break breaking and smashing the phone and removing the battery. Any correlation there? Wow. You know, I watched that show from start to finish. I never made that connection. Uh, but I don't think that you're off at all. I don't think I'm off either. Yeah. Because that yeah, was the first he, show it was done on. He's told, even the investigators, by the way, were shocked when he told them that. They, they said, why did you take the battery out? They'd never seen that before. And he said, well, as far as I know, then you can't track it. Yeah. And they were like, oh, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I um, think it's Walter White. I think it's Breaking Bad. And the show premiered in January 2008. I think that you're right. I, because he told them that he learned what to do and what not to do, both from popular culture, from shows like CSI and Criminal Minds, but also from the FBI itself. You know, he mm. read Mindhunter by John Douglas. Mm. He read Dark Dreams by Roy Hazelwood. He learned from the FBI's top criminal profilers how to evade any kind of detection by law enforcement, how not to leave DNA behind. It's what I call in the book, you know, as a culture, we are building better monsters. Absolutely. You know, there's a kind of a feedback thing that happens with, with criminals who watch programs very often about criminals. I mean, it's been, it's been suggested that one of the most you know, popular show was uh, uh, Cops. And uh, a, a large percentage of the audience were people who perhaps had a lot of uh, dealings with cops. He said something very interesting. I'm speaking about Israel Keys now. And if you're just joining us, this is Watching America. And my guest is Maureen Callahan, who has had an instantly best-selling book from the moment the book appeared, American Predator on the New York Times bestsellers list. I, I want to run this by you, Maureen. This is what he said at one point uh, uh, under investigation, Israel Keys. My concern, the problem is nowadays... Uh, the more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid frickin' TV special or, you know, you know how it is nowadays, like with all this true crime bull that people are obsessed with. He evidently, judging from that clip we just played, had uh, uh, certainly a grandiose sense of who he was, but also envisioned himself of being the subject of the very thing that you and I, uh, by volition, are doing right now. I, I don't exclude myself from this. We're doing a show about a murderer talking to you. You've written a book about a murderer. You've learned about other murderers and what have you. To what point do you think that we are, in an unhealthy sense, culpable uh, for, for this going on? Or do you think we're actually performing some kind of public service? How, how have you reasoned that? That's such an interesting dilemma, and it's something I've thought about 
every day I worked on the book, you know, the way in which I was telling the story, mm. the way in which uh, I was telling the stories of his victims, who are, are the most important aspect of the story, being careful not to in any way glorify who he was or what he had done. I make it very clear when I talk about this book that I don't consider him human. I consider him an aberration. Uh, the fact is there are potentially other victims out there, and there are these cases I explore in the book that really should, I think, be reopened. They look very, very likely to be the work of Israel Keys. Um, his sort of disdainful quote, you know, that he was going to be the subject of some sort of true crime BS, uh, is quite hypocritical given that when the FBI raided his house, they found a treasure trove of books and movies about serial killers, both fiction and non. So when I spoke to Steve Payne, who was the lead case agent on this for uh, quite some time, I spoke to him a few months ago and he said, you know, the plus and the minus here is people in law enforcement are going to read your book to learn what to do right. Mm. And so are the bad guys. Mm. Uh, and that's not specific to me. I mean, Roy Hazelwood, who was one of the godfathers of the art of criminal profiling at the FBI, he was on the ground floor with John Douglas. And I was lucky enough to talk to him for this book before he passed away. He said his own book, Dark Dreams, you know, that book was informed by, by many of the serial killers that he had interviewed. Uh, and Keith had read that book and loved that book and stole ideas from it. And, and Roy Hazelwood said, you know, this is just an unfortunate byproduct of, of this stuff existing in the world. The right people read it and the wrong people read it. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. This is Watching America from WHRV Public Media. Today's guest is Maureen Callahan, author of American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. The book details the investigation and capture of Israel Keys. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners, including children. Let's go back, as promised, to looking at the uh, following uh, murders. Uh, there is the case of him next time, not in New Jersey, but in Vermont, traveling to a rather remote area where he encounters a couple, uh, Bill and Lorraine Courier. Can you tell us about that, please? This is probably the case in, that I explore in the book that I've heard from readers terrifies them the most. Uh, it's real keys boarded a plane from Anchorage, uh, and he turned off his cell phone, broke it apart, ripped out the battery, was using only cash, flew to Illinois, rented a car, drove to Vermont, where he dug up one of the many kill kits he buried all over the United States of America. This kill kit, like all of the others, 
was a five-gallon Home Depot bucket, which was preloaded with guns, ammunition, zip ties, rope, cash from bank robberies he had previously committed, and Drano to accelerate human decomposition. He goes and checks into an inn, and that night he takes a walk around this suburb called Essex, very nice suburb in, in Vermont, and he finds himself standing outside of the house at 8 Colbert Street. It's a ranch. He's a construction worker. He knows how to predict the layout of the house by eyeballing its exterior. He goes around. He cuts the phone line. He's looking to see if there's an alarm system. There is not. He goes into the backyard. He's looking to see if a family lives here. He doesn't want to deal with children or pets. He sees no sign of either. He creeps around to the garage. He removes an air conditioner, shimmies his way into the garage through that, looks in the glove compartment of the green Saturn that's parked inside and sees that it's registered to a woman. This makes him very happy because he has a fantasy involving a couple. He can tell a man lives there based on the tools all around. He breaks in through the kitchen door. He's wearing a headlamp, head-to-toe in black, ski mask. He tells the FBI it took him six seconds to get from that door to the bedroom and tie up Bill and Lorraine Courier, whom he then takes from their home, drives in their car to an abandoned farmhouse at four in the morning where he tortures rapes Lorraine, and kills them both, leaves the body in the basement, drives off as the sun is coming up and people are on the road going to work. Nobody's any the water. Wow. The sexual aspect, um, whenever he had a female, did he sexually mutilate them? It wasn't specific to females. As he told the psychologist who conducted the court-ordered psychological examination, that he always knew he was bisexual and he never considered it a problem. Uh, in fact, when he was arrested, uh, among his possessions uh, in his rental car was a stash of transgender pornography. Um, so he planned to rape Bill Courier as well, but because Bill Courier fought back in the way he did, uh, he was unable to uh, to make that part of his plan to fruition. The whole thing begins to unravel, as you've indicated earlier, uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. So now he's working close to home again. And uh, although the actual arrest takes place in, in Lufton, Texas, I believe. But it mm-hmm. revolves around a woman who works in a, in a little hut uh, in Anchorage on ice, pretty much, uh, serving coffee. And she's she's wrapping up for the evening. And the unfortunate young lady's name is Samantha Koenig. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, Samantha was uh, his worst mistake, really, because prior to that, he had never killed in his own backyard. Uh, and he was losing control of his urges, as he told investigators. Samantha was an 18-year-old girl. She had just gotten this job. She really, really wanted it. Being a barista in Anchorage is kind of, it's like a badge of honor. Uh, Those kiosks, uh, which dot the roadways, are um, 
largely staffed by really young, attractive girls. And in the summer, they were often made to wear bikinis. It wasn't until Samantha went missing that it occurred to anybody in the community, let alone law enforcement, that this was not a safe thing for young girls to be doing, Mm. especially in the winter when it's dark 22 hours out of the day, like pitch black. Wow. So she goes missing right around her closing time, like 8 p.m. on a Wednesday night. And the police don't take this disappearance very seriously in the beginning. You know, they think what they know of Samantha is that she's a young girl with a troubled history and a past that involved drug use and uh, probably ran off with the money. Right. So when they finally get a look at the surveillance video from inside the kiosk, they see a very tall, athletic, rangy young man leap his way inside and overpower Samantha. And even then, they're still not sure that Samantha didn't orchestrate this herself, that this man is not somehow her accomplice, uh, and it, it, which seems rather an elaborate plan when there was maybe $300 in that till, if that. I was going to use the phrase insult to injury, but it is literally insult to death. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were so many mistakes made in this investigation. Um, When Keyes finally did confess, and, and that confession, interestingly, has long been withheld from public view by the FBI, uh, for reasons unknown, I was able to obtain it through a source. He he basically lays out all the things that they did wrong that night. Um, she could have been saved. When he detailed what went on that night, the entire time that he had her, it was very clear that, that other people had seen her. Multiple people had seen her that night. She had tried to escape. He abducted her and killed her in such a tight timeline, you know, about six hours that by the time we looked at the footage, she was already dead, but I don't really think that's an excuse. I think there's a lot to be learned from the mishandling of, of, of Samantha's case. Now, I don't want to uh, stop people, prevent people from reading your book, so I don't want to give away the ending. I'll leave it up to you, or would you rather uh, leave that to be a mystery for readers to discover? You know, it's very interesting because I've had people come up to me and say they're reading the book. And they are actively not Googling anything about the case, not wikiing Israel Keys, that they don't want to know the end. And I find that really remarkable. Uh, and I, I actually just did a, a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago with about 300 people, and one person asked how it ended and, and, and what has become of Israel Keys. And I asked the room what the sort of feeling was in terms of spoilers, and the rest of the room said, we don't want to know, we don't want to know, don't tell us. So as a rule, I, I don't tell people Okay, so we'll leave that out. Okay, so let me just go to now two wrap-up questions, right? And then um, yeah. it's just been a delightful interview, so I'll pick up from here. Oh, thank you, I've loved it. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Maureen Callahan, who has the distinct honor, which is not attributable to many people, of having a bestseller upon first week of release on the New York Times. Folks, it don't get better than that. Uh, And for good reason. It's a marvelous read. Her book, American Predator, is an examination of the serial killer Israel Keys. Um, Maureen, I want to conclude by asking you two questions, the first of which is just from a practical standpoint. 
Did you ever have a hard time at night sleeping? I mean, when things go bump in the night and you're devoting all of your day and most of your evening to doing this research, did you ever get creeped out? You know, it's interesting. I didn't really have nightmares and I didn't really have trouble sleeping. Uh, And I think I've thought about it a lot. I I think why has a lot to do with the... um, the deep conversations I had with the agents who worked this case. And they talked to me a lot about the trauma that they experienced and the emotional and psychological tolls that it took on them. At least one of the uh, FBI agents who worked this case talked to me about the PTSD that he still suffers today, uh, that he is a therapy dog, Mm. that he'll probably suffer the rest of his life. Mm. And, I, and I think that runs counter to so much of the way that these people are, are portrayed in the popular culture. You know, they've seen it all. Yes, they're, they're portrayed as rocks in uniform. Or, Nothing gets to yeah. them, exactly. Mm. And, 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 and the truth is it couldn't be far more the opposite. And I really felt that it was a, a privilege to hear those those things and to relay them to the reader. And it was my job to do that in the most detailed and sensitive way possible. So I really just saw myself as, as, as the messenger. Uh, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't me who had to see the things that they saw or experience the things that they did. So comparatively, you, you felt that you were not in such an extreme online onslaught of uh, information that was overwhelming. No, and I think, you know, part of that, too, was because I had to fight for so much of it and because it took me years to get so Mm -hmm. much of it that I wasn't being deluged with these horrors all at once. You know, it was coming at me piecemeal, and I think that helped. You alluded at the beginning of the program to the idea of, you know, environment versus, um, uh, if you will, development. And so is it innate that people are killers or is it environmental? Do they learn? What have you come away thinking in terms of Israel Keys? Well, this was one of the questions I put to Roy Hazelwood, uh, who would know better than most anyone. I said, you know, what do you think? Are they born or are they made? And he laughed and he said, I was wondering how long it was going to take you to ask me that. Um, And he went on to tell me that the earliest manifestation he saw of this degree of psychopathy was in a three-year-old who had been caught by his mother in the act of attempting autoerotic asphyxiation. Wow. And the mother, yeah, the mother took her toddler son to the pediatrician and was told not to worry, he will grow out of it. Uh, and that child grew up to become a serial killer. Um, I have to ask yeah, one other so- very, very uh, significant question, and uh, some people would just scoff at me asking this. Do you think there is such a thing as unbridled, complete evil of a demonic nature? I think before this book I wouldn't have known how to answer that, and now I would say yes. Uh his own mother called him evil to me and spoke of what she called his evil, his evil actions. And Keyes, in fact, is being studied at a very little-known FBI facility, but the nomenclature here is so important in telling. The FBI's Evil Minds Research Museum, 
where they are studying Israel Keys and other killers just like him. They consider it evil. Wow. Maureen Callahan, you have written a thoroughly engrossing book, uh, as attested to by the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sales that you have, as attested to by the fact that it became a New York Times bestseller upon its initial release within the first week. And I have to tell you, you are an utterly delightful guest to have on Watching America. Maureen Callahan, author of American Predator. Thank you so very, very much. It's been a delight. And the next time you come out with a tomb of any sort, please call us. We want to talk to you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Blessings. Thank you. You have been listening to Watching America. Watching America's theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Watching America's producer is Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer is Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And our CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. You can find this episode of Watching America on our website. You can also find previous episodes, like our show about free speech. Freedom of speech is about knowing the world as it really is. You are not safer for knowing less about the world in which you live. Every time you shut people up, you are saying, I will be better off for not knowing what you really think or what the world is really like. And the one about anger. If you think about anger compared to sadness, fear or guilt or jealousy, of those four or five emotions, which would you most like to feel? Chances are anger is is the one people would choose. It ends up feeling more empowering. And The Crying Show. I was in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and I saw a Vermeer up close. I just started weeping. All that and more online at whrv.org slash watching America.